Welcome to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena, the Christmas edition. I'm recording this at about 6 p.m. local time on Christmas Day. Hope everybody had a wonderful and safe holiday and that the, the huge winter storm didn't affect too many of you adversely. So, what are we going to do today? Well, I happened to stumble across something a few days ago that I thought would be interesting for everybody. And it came out in June of 2022 from the Congressional Research Service. And it was a report to Congress titled Mexico Organized Crime and Drug Trafficking Organizations. Now, I remember hearing almost nothing about this when it came out. And so I thought it was worth taking a look at. And there's some interesting things in here. So I read the 40-page report, and I looked at the 223 footnotes. So you all don't have to. And I'm going to try and pick out some of the the interesting ideas, some of the the little nuggets in it, and give you an idea of, of kind of what at least the congressional Research Service was saying as of June of this year about uh, the Mexican cartels and violence. Uh, Then at the end, I'm going to do something a little fun just for the heck of it. Um, But I want to talk about some Christmas wishes for a variety of folks. So we'll do that at the very end. So as I said, the um, the report that came out, Congressional Research Service, Mexico, Organized Crime, and Drug Trafficking Organizations. And what the the report says is that the report analyzes Mexico's criminal landscape, including pervasive violence and corruption. It also discusses categories of illicit drugs in Mexico and profiles nine major criminal organizations in Mexico, as well as the phenomena of fragmentation and competition among these major drug trafficking organizations. It goes on to say, Mexico shares a nearly 2,000-mile border with the United States, and the two countries have longstanding and close trade, cultural, and demographic ties. Mexico's transnational criminal organizations supply illicit drugs to the United States and engage in a wide variety of other lucrative transnational criminal activities. And I read these two paragraphs from from the introduction because I I think they're interesting in the way that they they group or, or characterize two different types of organizations. So you have drug trafficking organizations that they refer to as DTOs, And then you have transnational criminal organizations, which they refer to as TCOs, which are broader. So in addition to supplying drugs, they engage in other criminal activities. And I think this distinction is something that's important, something that we've talked about a lot. You know, the idea that... um, that a lot of the activities of... Even the the cartels that we talk about on a regular basis, you know, the Sinaloa cartel, CJNG, um, they've got a lot of activities, uh, some that are legal, 
many that aren't, but many that are not solely with um, drug trafficking. And in many ways, and we'll talk about this as we go forward, but in many ways that makes them even more difficult to fight, right? You know, if if somebody's only traveling on one road, if you block that road, you've done a good job of block, blocking their path. If they're only trafficking in marijuana, you know, you could take steps to disrupt the cultivation and transportation and sales of marijuana. If they do marijuana and kidnapping and own local uh, stores or whatever the case may be, it it gets harder and harder and harder. So I think looking at the, the major cartels in particular as these transnational criminal organizations, TCOs, and by the way, that's generally how they're referred to in DEA documents. If you see internal DEA documents discussing um, the cartels in Mexico and things, they usually refer to them as TCOs. Um, So here's what they also say in this report about TCOs. Um, And and again, I want to point out, just just so everybody's on the same page, a lot of this, uh, especially this in the introduction, is stuff that we all know. And and I don't think it's... it's, uh, any great revelation. On the other hand, there is value to seeing how it's characterized and the way it's being uh, presented to a congressional audience. Remember, that's who the initial audience for this report is, is the United States Congress. But it says TCO's illicit activities have contributed to a spike in U.S. drug overdoses, have provided a push factor for migration out of Mexico and may have driven internal displacement. Easy for me to say. Mexican TCOs also contribute to high levels of violence and corruption in Mexico. TCO-related violence in Mexico affects U.S. individual and commercial interests, as well as the stability of Mexico's governing institutions. Okay? So, um, you know, and it goes on and it does say, you know, over the last decade, Congress has held... Numerous hearings on U.S. counter-narcotics assistance and border security issues, which often highlight TCO-perpetrated violence, which is kind of like saying, hey, Congress, you've known the problem for 10 years. You've held hearings about it, but nothing's been done. So let us tell you where we're at. One of the things that the the report does is it kind of breaks down the the different um, narcotics that the DTOs, whether or not they're also characterized as as TCOs, but the major narcotics being trafficked. Um, One of which is cocaine, of course. An interesting note, Mexican government seizures of cocaine in the first six months of 2021 increased by 90% compared with the same period in 2020. So, Government seizures in Mexico of cocaine dramatically up in 2021. And again, um, you know, this was in 2022, June of 2022. So data is always a year or so behind. Now, um, the other thing it talks about is heroin and synthetically produced opioids. 
An interesting comment in the report is the assertion that the DEA maintains that no other crime groups, foreign or domestic, have a reach comparable to that of Mexican TCOs to distribute white powder heroin and fentanyl within the United States. And we know since this report was produced, since the data in it was found, fentanyl has continued to grow and grow and grow. And the fact of the matter is that distribution comes from Mexico, comes from the Mexican TCOs. It comes from the Mexican cartels. It also says, and we've heard a lot about this recently, illicit imports of fentanyl from Mexico involve Chinese-produced fentanyl or fentanyl precursors sourced from China, but TCOs are reportedly seeking supplies from other sources, such as India. And I recently read um, several reports talking about Malaysian suppliers. So you've got a variety of issues if the... Uh, a significant portion of the fentanyl is initially being supplied by China. Is the government of China in any way complicit in that? Does that have anything to do with geopolitical issues? You know, are there political reasons for the uh, the Chinese government to want to see more fentanyl produced in Mexico and distributed to the United States? I, I know we hear some about that on, on the news and, and uh, on social media, but this report in particular doesn't um, significantly address that issue, but it's definitely raised. The report also says that synthetic drugs might gradually replace plant source drugs in the criminal market. And remember, I told you that when I was at the uh, International Summit on Mexican Cartels a while back, somebody there said that natural heroin would be essentially gone in the next five years because synthetic drugs would replace them, that they were much easier to make and transport, um, you know, the profit margin is better, it's secure, more secure, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, this report seems to indicate that. And it also notes um, that there will be a continuing decline in Mexico's heroin exports as synthetics continue to attract TCO interest and investment. So again, that's exactly what we're talking about. Uh, they also note the the use or the um, the distribution of methamphetamines by these TCOs. Uh, it says Mexican produced methamphetamine has overtaken U.S. sources of the drug. Uh, Mexico's illicit supply has expanded into new markets inside the United States, allowing Mexican traffickers to control the U.S. wholesale market. The report also talks about uh, marijuana or cannabis, and it notes, of course, the fact that legalized medical and recreational marijuana in many uh, of the states in the United States in much of Canada, uh, Mexico's potential or likelihood of legalizing some forms of or some use of marijuana may have reduced the the value of 
marijuana in Mexican trafficking organizations, um, you know, their illicit portfolios. And so the value of marijuana to these cartels uh, uh, may be different. Now, as a side note, if you if you look at the the um, the newsletter that will come out this afternoon as well, I I link an article there that talks about kind of the evolution of marijuana with some of the cartels and notes how some cartels, most particularly Los Chapitos, um, you know, within the, the Sinaloa cartel, are trying to get involved in the legal distribution of marijuana or the legal end of marijuana, thinking that if they can establish legal ties, especially, you know, when it becomes legal in, in Mexico, They've already got the distribution network, and then they're also trying to produce super marijuana or really good marijuana, however you want to look at it, and think that they can take a sizable chunk of the legal market when it comes about. Um, So that's going to be interesting. But I think from a traditional point of view, the utility of having you know, go back to Rancho Buffalo, you know, hectare after hectare after hectare of of marijuana, thousands of employees. The value of that in today's world to Mexican cartels is significantly less. Uh, the report, uh, this congressional report, also kind of talks about what it calls the evolution of crime groups. And it says that nine TCOs are currently most prominent and about which most information is available. And one of the problems I have with the report, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, is kind of the sourcing of where they get some of this information. Um, And I think that some some of the conclusions drawn... And, and really, there's not a lot of conclusions. It's, it's more informational. But some of the analysis really is um, weighted in favor of the the cartels about which they have information and um, to the discrediting or lack of respect for or fear of, if you want, some of the other cartels or groups that really do have a significant influence, even if they're not on social media, even even if they're not as well known. So the report says for several years, years, DEA identified the following seven organizations as dominant. Sinaloa, Los Zetas, the AFO, uh, the Correo Fuentes organization or the Juarez cartel, uh, Beltra Levan, Leva, sorry, uh, Gulf, and La F- F- one more time, La Familia Michoacana, and it labels those as the quote unquote traditional drug trafficking organizations. And as we've talked about many, many times, you can trace a lot of this back to that 1989 meeting with uh, Felix Gallardo's lawyers and many of the plaza leaders where things get split up. So in some respects, 
these are the cartels, the traditional cartels, the traditional DTOs that emerged from that series of events and emerged from Felix Gallardo's inability to to kind of manage the process anymore from prison. The report says, um, and again, it's not always 100% consistent, but in, in several places it notes the fragmentation of some of these traditional DTOs. And it says that beginning in about 2008, in particular, there was a kind of what is referred to as the current wave of splintering of these large DTOs into fang- factions and gangs, and that this is, has had um, a number of effects in... Um, We'll talk some about those, but it gives a good example or what it thinks is a good example. So it says, for example, the Gulf Cartel based in northeastern Mexico had a long history of dominance at the end of the 20th century with the height of its powers in the early 2000s. However, the Gulf Cartel's enforcers, Los Zetas, who were organized from highly trained Mexican military deserters, split in 2010 to form a separate DTO and turned against their former employers engaging in a particularly violent competition for territory. The Gulf cartel now lacks its former power and reach. So again, it's using that as a specific example of how there's been this fractionalization and that leads to its analysis of what are the major current DTOs or TCOs, the, what we would again refer to generally as, as cartels. Uh, it also notes that as this uh, fracturing and the rise of new criminal groups, as that expanded, these groups also sought to um, expand the range and diversity of the criminal businesses that they were engaging in. So they end up becoming almost, you know, uh, polycrime syndicates, almost more mafia-like than just a drug trade organization. And uh, you know, we can talk about this at a different time, but there are um, there are many things that these newer cartel groups and factions and leadership have done. You know, some specialize in one illegal business, again, that almost always is being narcotics, right? But then you have many others that will do things like, you know, they have legitimate businesses. That's a great way to hide their earnings, uh, launder money. And as we talked about with the legalization of marijuana, maybe um, you'll get a a step up in a future legalized process. Uh, Then you have a lot of other things. You have the extortion of businesses in agriculture, mining, seafood, tinder. Uh, you have security. You know, the, the cartels will provide security for, for funds. Um, you have um, kidnapping. You have extortion. So a variety of things that many of these TCOs are doing in order to be more fluid, to be more nimble, and to 
survive and um, handle challenges from other drug organizations, internal challenges, right? If you look at a lot of the cartels that have splintered, the the initial uh, you know fracture comes from within, not not from the outside, and then this allows the TCOs to really face and account for changing drug market dynamics. And going back to that article on Los Chupitos that I was talking about earlier, one of the interesting things there is they're talking about Los Chupitos really bringing more of a business mentality and a business-like structure to at least portions of the business kind of as opposed to more of the old world style of governance of El Mayo and El Chapo. Um, so one of the th- things, again, it talks about the fact that what you'll have in a lot of these cartels is the idea of um, more nimble, flatter organizations that tend to be more loosely networked and um, as opposed to highly structured. And that allows for you to have many smaller organizations, many splinter groups. Uh, if you look on Reddit, and I'll talk about Reddit in a minute, but if you look on Reddit, you know, you'll see polls of which subgroup is the most powerful, most important under a certain cartel. There was one today about the Sinaloa cartel, you know, who's, who's the most important. So all of that is, is I think, interesting um, and, uh, and, and gives a nice context for what's going on. And I think that if you're looking at the goal of this report to inform Congress, it really was to give um, a, an overview that allows things going on today to be analyzed with some degree of intellectualism and some degree of context. I want to read the, the last um, the last paragraph before we start talking about specific cartels, because I think this is interesting. It says, open source research about the traditional DTOs and their successors is more available than information about smaller factions. No steady open source information is available about most of the 200 to 400 current criminal groups. It is difficult to ascertain these groups' longevity or assess which qualify as major actors. The enduring major organizations and their successors are still operating, at times either cooperating or in conflict with one another. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? So what it really says is, number one, 200 to 400 current criminal organizations, most of which there's no real good information on. That, that, that to me was, was, um, was pretty interesting. Okay, the, um, the report then goes through and talks about the major cartels and the vast majority of the information provided, quite frankly, is stuff that we all know. 
um, and, and wasn't all that exciting. But I'm going to try and pick out some of the things that, that I thought were most interesting. Um, and a couple places, there are some, some, some nice observations. So when they talk about the Sinaloa cartel, of course, one of the big topics is to discuss the capture of El Chapo. But then it continues and it says, you know, when El Azul was um, said to have died in 2014, and it notes that that death is still unconfirmed. But the idea was that El Chapo gets sent to, to you know, deported to the United States. Los Chapitos come in, but El, El Mayo continues his leadership role for at least a major faction, if not all of them. Goes on to say, though, that the Sinaloa cartel may now operate with a more horizontal leadership structure than previously thought. Now, here's the part that I find interesting. Some observers dispute the extent to which El Chapo made key strategic decisions for the Sinaloa cartel. They contend that El Chapo was a figurehead whose arrest had little impact on Sinaloa's functioning as he had long ceded operational tasks to El Mayo and El Azul uh, long before his arrest. Um, This certainly isn't the first time that we've heard allegations like this. Um, Ed Calderon has been on a couple of podcasts recently saying some more things about El Chapo. In a lot of respects, it it makes some degree of sense. Um, and irrespective of the accuracy of the allegation or irrespective of, of the amount of real operational control that El Chapo had, the one thing we know for sure is the CDS does not appear to have suffered significantly as a result of his operational acumen being lost, right? Now, the battle between El Mayo and Los Chapitos, to the extent it exists in different areas, that could be problematic. But certainly, the Sinaloa cartel didn't fall apart when... um, El Chapo was arrested, didn't fall apart when he was extradited. And we've seen, we talked about last week, you know, in in different states, different areas where the CDS faces competition from CJNG, the Sinaloa cartel, the different factions within there, El Miles Group, Los Chapitos, whomever else, they seem to coalesce with each other work together when they're against other groups, most particularly CJNG. One of the things that the report ends up saying about Sinaloa cartel is it says some analysts have warned that Sinaloa remains powerful given its dominance internationally, its infiltration of the upper reaches of the Mexican government, and its resilient networked alliance structure. Other analysts maintain that Sinaloa is in decline, citing its breakup into battling factions and its conflict with CJNG. Numerous authorities 
considers CJNG to be the most expansive cartel, although not necessarily the most powerful, inside Mexico. Well, if you break that down, this is great um, consultant speech or political speech or however you want to look at it. Um, so it's either <laughs> that that, C, that Sinaloa, the CDS, continues to be dominant or it's not, <laughs> which is really hard to argue with. And that's one of the reasons that this report is difficult to to really take much from because it does a lot of the back and forth. And then when it says some analysts, I got to tell you, when you start looking at them, it ends up being newspaper reports. It ends up being reports on um, inside crime and um, and other places. And, and no di- disrespect to, to any of the sources, but it's, um, it's hard to to take any one of them and, and say, oh, this is the the one you you should follow. It's it's a lot of he said she said. Again, CDS is most powerful. No, it's not. It's CJNG. Well, you know, uh, El Chapo was a figurehead. No, he wasn't. It's hard to really figure things out. And again, go back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago. When we're talking about CJNG and CDS, those are the ones they know the most about, by far. By far. And you still can't get any real um, hard or, or you know definitive statements about almost anything. So what does the report say about um, CJNG? It says uh, CJNG's battle to dominate the key ports on both the Pacific and Gulf Coast have allowed it to consolidate important components of the global narcotics supply chain. In particular, CJNG maintains control over the ports of Veracruz, Manzanillo, and Lazaro Cardenas, which has given the group access to precursor chemicals that flow from Mexico or flow into Mexico from China and from other parts of Latin America. As a result, according to some analysts, again, there's always that caveat, CJNG has pursued an aggressive growth strategy underwritten by U.S. demand for Mexican methamphetamine, heroin, and fentanyl. Now, I find that interesting because, again, one of the the traditional arguments is between the U.S. and Mexico. U.S. saying, Mexico, you have to do more to stop the supply. And Mexico saying, U.S., you have to do more to stop the demand. If there's demand, there's going to be supply. And this seems to be saying, CJNG is growing. They're aggressively growing, and they're doing so because the demand for methamphetamine, heroin, fentanyl is not receding. In fact, it's growing. Uh, According to a 2002 report, the CJNG, whose base of operations is in Jalisco, holds the coastal city of Puerto Vallarta, 
an important node of its synthetic drug trafficking operations. In addition to drug trafficking, CJNG is skilled, powerful, um, focused on extortion, money laundering, human trafficking, other sources of illicit revenue. Last week, we uh, we talked a lot, or two weeks ago, we talked a lot about AFO. The report here says that it remains unclear if AFO retains enough power through its trafficking and other crimes to continue to operate as a toll gate cartel. And the idea had been that kind of in the old days, if you were going to go move drugs through you know, the, the uh, area of Tijuana, in any way, shape, or form, you had to deal with AFO. They were going to get their piece. They controlled that market. And the question is whether or not they still do, if the remnants of AFO still does, or if they work more on a piecemeal basis and really it's it's a cooperative network of gangs. The report says that some have um, attributed to the, the resurgence in violence in Tijuana and um, Baja California to um, efforts by CJNG to um, to strike an alliance with the AFO or remnants of AFO, and that this has set apart or set them apart from um, and and put them in direct competition with. The Sinaloa cartel, which again has has always wanted apparently a access to um, and an easier time moving drugs through Tijuana. So it also says, and again, I think this is this is interesting. Um, AFL may, may yet serve as either a useful ally or a significant obstacle to other trafficking groups. Mexican law enforcement has focused on Tijuana cartel splinter groups, collectively known as AFO holdouts. The holdouts appear to play a major role in the Tijuana drug market, and these residual residual cells have been linked to homicides taking place in the Tijuana drug distribution area. (laughs) No offense to the drafters of this report, but this ends up saying absolutely nothing. Right, we know AFO went through lots of issues. It may or may not exist. There may or may not be holdouts. The holdouts may or may not be working with CJNG. They may or may not, uh, you know, work with other cartels on a piecemeal basis. Really, don't know. Doesn't really provide a whole lot of new information about uh, the AFO. Uh, it talks a lot about um, the Zetas and CDN. Uh, I'll talk about this later. But one of the one of the um, the concerns I have is kind of its historical nature of the report, and I'll explain that more in a bit. But it really focuses a lot on um, the Zetas, and um, it says that one author. 
I can um, I can get you the the name on this if you want. Um, but one author reviewed the history of Los Zetas and it's split into major factions. This evolution influenced the organization's once coherent prospects, so that its power declined from the peak of its dominance in 2011-2012. A prominent faction is Cartel de Noreste, a revanded version of the traditional core of Los Zetas. Um, and one of the things that that it talks about is the idea that Los Zetas really started to fall apart after its leadership. I mean, it it had leadership problems, right? People getting killed, people getting arrested. And that led in large part to the disintegration or the loss of power of Los Zetas. But what emerged from that were lots of very powerful franchises or cells or gangs or however you want to describe them. We've talked a lot about um, the idea that Los Zetas and CDN um, you know, are still around, in, especially in, in uh, Nuevo Laredo. The idea in recent months that CDS may be trying to um, push them out of Nuevo Laredo and maybe getting government assistance in doing that. One thing that is mentioned here is the idea that the Zetas model, if you will, of real extreme violence to achieve domination um, is something that ended up being followed by a lot of cartels, most particularly CJNG. We also um, have some discussion in here about La Familia Michoacana and... This one I have a lot of issues with, but I'll tell you what it says. So it says, so though officially disbanded, LFM remained in operation even after the arrest in 2011 of its leader, El Chango. Um, remaining cells of LFM reportedly remain active in trafficking, kidnapping, and extortion in Guerrero and Mexico State, especially in the working class suburbs around Mexico City. Observers report that LFM was largely driven out of Michoacan by the Knights Templar, although a group calling itself the new Familia Michoacana, La Nueva Familia Michoacana, reportedly has been active in parts of Guerrero and Michoacan. We know that the new family Michoacana is prominent in Michoacan, we know that it has um, a lot of its um, tentacles in the uh, the fentanyl distribution. That a lot of the fentanyl coming from the United or into the United States originates in Michoacan. So um, this is one area where I, in particular, think. The data they're looking at is old and is reflective of how quickly things can change. Now, of course, you should be asking yourselves, well, how the hell is Congress ever supposed to do anything? Assuming there's anything they could do. But when they're always getting late information, that I think is a continuing problem, right? Hey, write us a report. Okay, it's going to take us six months or nine months, and we're going to rely on data that's six or nine months old. 
a lot of these things are changing. These conditions, the factions, the groups um, are changing on a weekly or monthly basis. The, um, the report kind of describes in broad generalized terms some of what it calls the turf wars. Um, but it doesn't go into great detail on any of them. And it provides a couple of maps that are fairly interesting to look at if you if you want. Um, but it describes the the primary again turf wars as being between CJNG and CDS. We all know that one. Uh it also says CJNG and local groups in Michoacan and Oaxaca. I think that's really La Familia, uh, Nueva Familia, Michoacana, right? So as opposed to local groups, I think that's one that we can attribute to them and the battle being really over fentanyl coming into and out of Michoacan. It also talks about the Gulf and the Zetas uh, in uh, Nueva Leon and, and other places. Uh, CDS versus Juarez in Chihuahua, and then uh, CJNG versus the Zetas in Veracruz. Again, in my mind, you really have three that you care about. You got CJNG and CDS that obviously are most important. I think the battle for control over fentanyl is important, and then I think the uh, the major efforts to uh, have some realignment in Nuevo Laredo and associated areas uh, are the most important ones. The um, the report ends up with some what it calls some um, you know uh, outlook ideas and and um, some of these are important and and so I'll just share a little bit with you. Uh, one of the things it talks about a lot is the continued revelation of high-level corruption linked to their crime groups and their apparent control of Mexican territory demonstrates that the TCOs are more deeply entrenched than ever. Yes, we all know that. Uh, moreover, in 2022, U.S.-Mexico law enforcement cooperation is weaker than at any time during the previous 15 years. The Lopez Obrador government faces allegations of DTO-related corruption of public officials, politicians, and the nation's police force. Again, we know that. The growing diversity of cartel criminality, the continued high global demands for narcotics, and the weak cooperation between U.S. and law enforcement all point to a continued TCO threat to both the United States and Mexico. Here's something that I find I thought was very interesting. Many analysts have questioned the utility of the king's kingpin strategy or a high value targeting approach to enforcement to combat the TCOs or to reduce TCO perpetrated violence. The kingpin strategy has often been encouraged by the US government and has been adopted by some Mexican administrations. Lopez Orbiter initially rejected, but has at times embraced the kingpin strategy. Some analysts endorse a more modified strategy that would target the middle operational layers of each major criminal group to handicap their regeneration capacity. So don't go for the head. You know, the idea of 
in boxing, you know, if if you enough body blows and the head will follow. Uh, one thing, too, uh, two causes of the current violence may be erosion of Sinaloa cartel's dominance and the heightened competition to profit from increasing production and distribution of heroin, synthetic opioids, predominantly fentanyl, and methamphetamine. Some observers remain convinced of the capacity of both the Sinaloa organization and CJN to retain CJNG to retain significant power by backing their well-established bribery and corruption networks for their demonstrated capacity for violence. So, you know, which really kind of says, if you think about it, Mexico put aside the battle or the fight with the U.S. over what's worse, supply or demand. You know, what's the root cause, supply or demand? The root cause may be, in some respects, the well-established, long-term bribery, corruption networks, and, you know, a, a system, both politically and economically, that understands and accepts and acknowledges corruption. And that it's that element that makes it so difficult to get anywhere, right? You know, you're going to get the occasional Caro Quintero arrest, but you're also going to get El Mencho escaping from things. You're going to get the occasional, as happened this week, El Mencho's brother, you know, getting arrested. Um, But are you going to get to El Mencho? And if you do, does it make any difference? Because everybody feeds off of this corruption, the you know the local cops, the state police, the the federal police, the politicians, the the uh, the military, the national guard. It's 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 that nature and the prevalence of it that's so ingrained. This report seems to be saying it's going to be very hard to really get at, whether it's Sinaloa or CJNG or their successors in interest, if you have that continuing corrupt network and that corrupt infrastructure. All right. What are what are some of the, the concerns um, about this, this report? Number one, mentioned it a little bit, the plural of anecdote is not data. And if you go through and you look at the uh, a lot of the footnotes, it's it really comes down to somebody said this. It's not data. It may you know again. How many times did I read to you? You know, some analysts say, some analysts have theorized. Uh, you know. There is no hard data, and I don't think um, anybody's really been able to do a hardcore analysis of the cartels, and 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 that all makes sense, right? You know, you've got a few uh, journalists who have done a, a, a very good job. Uh, Yoan Grillo has done some some crazy crazy things, um, and and has lots of connections. 
But then you have, you know, others that seem to be, you know, more like propagandists. So the bottom line is we don't know a lot. And because we don't know a lot, we end up with this back and forth. Well, it could be CJ Angie's more powerful than Sinaloa, and that's the one we need to worry about. Or it could be that CDS is still the most powerful. Or it could be that La Familia Michoacana doesn't exist anymore. You know, everything's back and forth, and it's really hard for, even if we assume for the sake of argument that Congress wanted to do something and Congress you know, could, had the political will and the political power and the votes to do something, it's hard to take this report and say, okay, here's what you should do. And maybe there's some immediate short-term answers people would say, you know, uh, do something to to cut down on on illegal immigration. Okay, is that going to stem the flow of, of fentanyl into the United States? Probably not very much. So I think... For me, this report evidences the lack of real information and real understanding and a continued reliance on anecdotes, statements, um, and, and a personal plea. If you go on websites like Reddit or, um, you know, there's, there's some, um, even like on, on Instagram or on Facebook, there's some cartel-related um, groups, people share information like it's an absolute fact. And it may be, but take everything with some skepticism. Because anybody can go on there and say anything they want because nobody says, what's your source? And if somebody does, you get, well, I live in Tijuana. Well, big deal. I live in Colorado, and I couldn't tell you who the primary drug dealer in Colorado is, okay? So we need to be very, very careful about what we're asserting are facts. And if they're not facts, if they're not absolutely known, then somebody should say that. Based on all the evidence I've seen, here's what I think. That, you know, that makes sense. One of the things that we've tried to do from day one on this podcast and we're going to do on the YouTube channel that starts next week is everything is going to be sourced right i you know i'm reading to you from the congressional report i've picked out things in you know in the last narc and i've told you the exact place it is i've looked at books and said okay here's here's an issue here's the page that it's from in the book then you can make your own conclusions. But anyone, especially a congressional report replying on anecdotes and and these, you know, the broad, some analysts have said this, some analysts, it just doesn't go very far. Um, I do think the other problem with this report is it still, even though it talks about gangs and and fractionalization and you know even kind of the idea of franchisees under some of the the cartel you know headings um it still has an antiquated view of cartels 
it has a, for lack of a better term, it has a Narcos Mexico perspective on cartels and how they're run that I don't think fits with modern cartels, fits with modern communication, and certainly doesn't fit with the stories of the business acumen of some of the new groups and the idea of moving away from, you know, large truckloads of marijuana growing in the deserts of Chihuahua. Those are the old days. We have new dynamics. And if we don't have analysts and skilled people looking at them, reporters, analysts, whomever, that recognize those differences, that account for those differences, then it's the the prototypical garbage in, garbage out. Garbage in, garbage out. And then the last idea is I really think that that for a variety of reasons, fentanyl is highly underreported here. And the impact of fentanyl is not even remotely touched upon in, a, in an accurate way. Fentanyl has become a much, much bigger problem uh, in the United States, a much bigger product from Mexico, from uh, you know, Southeast Asia, China, or, and or India, or Malaysia. And th- that process, okay, bringing it in from other countries, manufacturing it in Mexico, moving it into the United States, the quantities, the volume, the capacity of doing it, the fact that you don't need vast plantations anymore. That's changed the dynamics a lot. I think it also makes it much, much harder to take down a whole cartel. But I think the uh, a problem with the report is the underreporting, the underanalysis of fentanyl. Having said that, many good things, many interesting things in the report. And uh, you know, if you have insomnia some night and you want to read it, it's uh, it's easy to find online. Okay, so that's the report. And before we go, since today is Christmas, I'd like you to indulge me for just a couple minutes. And I have a wish list or a gift list. If I could gift to the following folks something for 2023, what would it be? And I just have a few that I'd like to like to share. So for Operation Landa, for all the guys and ladies still working on the case, uh, my wish for you is a trial, a trial in Los Angeles with high-profile defendants, starting with but not ending with Rafael Carol Quintero. Uh, for the Honorable Enrique Kiki Camarena Jr., my gift to you or wish for you in 2023 <laughs> would be the ability to speak freely and not be constrained by uh, the requirements of your noble profession that uh, that I have reason to believe 
doesn't allow you to say everything that you'd like to say. So may you get an opportunity to speak your mind at some point. Uh, For El Chapo, my gift to El Chapo would be another 365-day stay at Supermax in Florence, Colorado. You know, it's not terrible. He gets three meals a day, gets outside once a day, and he can complain for another year about the the poor conditions. Uh, For Rafael Caro Quintero, my wish and gift for you is I'll even make it a first-class ticket from Mexico City to Los Angeles, California. For Miguel Angel Felix Gardo, frankly, I hope he gets the front house arrest. I hope it comes soon. Not because I think he's pure as the driven snow, because we know that's not the case, but because I don't think he had a lot to do with the uh, abduction and murder of Agent Camarena, if anything, frankly. Uh, and because I think others have... have uh, gotten off for a whole lot less than he has. So house arrest for Felix Gallardo. For El Mencho, two things. Would love it if he could have a first-class seat next to Rafael Caracantero on the flight to uh, to Los Angeles. And a cell next to El Chapo would be uh, poetic justice as well. For Genial Cienfuegos, a return trip to New York City with or without seeing the sights. So, um, and then a couple of others for Abel Reynoso. If you don't know Abel Reynoso, I've talked about him a couple of times, but he was a DEA agent. He's now an artist. He's got a gallery in Fort Lauderdale. Um, you can see it online. I hope you sell lots and lots and lots of really, really good art. Um, for uh, Jaime Kirkendall, Bill Koontz, and some others, uh, good health. May you um, be as pain-free and as comfortable as possible in the next year. We, uh, we're not ready to... Uh, to see if any of you go anywhere anytime soon. And then for friends, family, supporters, a good, healthy, and profitable 2023. And uh, my wish for myself is to do about another 52 episodes of this podcast and do my best to uh, to entertain illuminate and uh, maybe raise some questions and some thoughts with all of you. So with that, Merry Christmas, everyone. And we will talk to you next year. Take care.